MacCast, Sunday, December 12th, 2021. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is a show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How are you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Have things gotten a little bit chilly where you are? I think winter is finally set in here in Southern California, and by that I mean, you know, it's 50 degrees and we're freezing. I'm getting cold already. I know many of you probably live in places that are much, much colder um, I don't know how early the onset of the winter season comes to you, but um, yeah, I had to throw on a uh, sweatshirt as I was recording this podcast because I'm a little bit uh, a little bit cold. But anyway, I hope you are having a great, wonderful day, weekend, whatever it might be. Sitting here in the studio, looking over the show notes, man, we have a lot of things to talk about. I was surprised, you know. The last few episodes, we haven't had a ton of news going on. It's been a little bit slow, but this past week, wow, things really blew up. So we have a number of things to talk about in today's episode. We're going to be getting into um, iPhone sales and what's going on there. There's been kind of this back and forth, and we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, Talking about Mac growth in the enterprise, a secret investment that uh, Tim Cook was involved in. We'll talk about that a little bit. A bunch of Apple TV news, a few new shows and and series and movies to talk about. We're going to get into some updates coming for Mac OS and uh, talk about one that doesn't look like it's going to be making it here before the end of the year, and that's a little bit disappointing. And then we will get into what Apple is doing with their headset stuff. That's a kind of continuing conversation we've been having here on the MacCast. We actually have some feedback on that today as well from uh, from the community. We're going to get into what's next for Apple products, what products we should expect to see, and we get some confirmation of some rumors from one of our favorite analysts. Also, a change to the Mac App Store rules that didn't come through this week, and also updates on classical music in the music app, and then we've got some follow-up on some things that are going on with HomeKit and home automation in the news this week as well. So like I said, super feature-packed, and then we're going to get back into some of your feedback. We're going to talk about Apple's headset a little bit. We're going to get into a question or kind of a follow-up on questions about backups and M1 Max. Uh, Got a little more details on that, a few more questions and follow-up. We're going to get into Windows on M1 Max and how we might do that. And then we do have this week a thing of the moment from a listener, a great app to talk about. And uh, that was something I had asked for your kind of recommendations of cool things that people might want to check out for the holidays. And uh, that will round out this episode of the MacCast. So why don't we just jump right into things, starting off with Apple iPhone sales. You know, remember how we were talking about the reports from Bloomberg that Apple was telling their suppliers to reduce production on iPhone 13 series components, and that was because of lower demand. I think we were talking about that literally in the last episode of the MacCast. The issue was consumers were being becoming basically frustrated 
with low availability on the iPhone 13. So a lot of people wanting iPhone 13, but they're backordered. And it was causing uh, some folks to just kind of decide, hey, maybe I'll just wait until the iPhone 14, or at least that's what Apple's thinking was, according to the report. And this was all predicated by low availability caused by ship chip shortages and supply chain issues and, and what have you, right? So it's been hard to get your hands on an iPhone if you want to get one. Now, according to DigiTimes, Apple is looking at 2022, and they may, may be rethinking those orders, or maybe not. Maybe none of it ever happened. We don't really know at this point, but the new reports say that iPhone 13 uh, demand should rebound early this year, early in 2022, or this upcoming year, I guess, and that uh, Apple is expecting iPhone 14 to be an even bigger seller. So they're looking pretty bullish on 2022 for iPhone sales. As a matter of fact, the report claims that Apple is now expecting up to a 30% increase in iPhone 13 demand in the first half of 2022, and they are setting an even bigger goal overall for the year of shipping a total of 300 million iPhones in 2022. So iPhone 14 is expected to be a big one. That's not really surprising because as I think I mentioned on the last episode, iPhone 13 was really kind of just a a small update, almost what in the past we would have called an S year for iPhone and iPhone 14, we are expecting a lot more out of. So that generally uh, generates a lot more interest and a lot more upgrades and those sorts of things. But even in the first half, it's looking like iPhone 13 might still do very, very well. And I even heard some reports or saw some reports this week that uh, maybe the Bloomberg speculation was off a little bit, that uh, I think it was even DigiTimes was saying iPhone component supply demand did not get reduced by Apple and that things were going just fine. And sounding like with the first half of 2022, maybe being up 30%, uh, it's looking okay for iPhone, uh, at least as it stands right now. Data is coming in from Jamf, who is a company, if you don't know, that helps IT departments manage computers and devices. They show that businesses are taking a liking to the new Apple Silicon Macs. They say M1 growth in the enterprise is looking quite healthy. They claim customers have already, their customers have already deployed 1 million M1 based Macs to their their employees. And they also say that 74% of their customers have deployed at least one M1 based Mac in their environments. So this is interesting because we knew that M1 demand among consumers was really pretty high, but it's sounding like Apple is doing very well with the M1 in enterprise as well, which bodes really, really good for overall Mac sales. So it'll be really interesting to see what kinds of numbers Macs start to post early next year and then just throughout the year because we are still expecting more of the pro systems to arrive you know higher end iMacs the Mac Pros are on the way Uh, we did get the MacBook Pros but those haven't been out for very long so I don't know how much of a material impact those would have had uh, on these numbers from Jamf assuming that uh, you know that, that they're looking at more recent things but this has kind of been over the period of 2020 into 2021. So 1 million Macs in enterprise. I mean, in comparison to the total Macs sold, 
That's not a ton, but still, it's good. It's a good sign and uh, shows good things for Apple in the enterprise moving forward. Details came out this past week on what some are calling a secret $275 million deal that Apple made with China back in 2016 when iPhones were losing ground in China to local smartphone manufacturers. The site The Information made the report citing interviews and internal Apple documents. It was a five-year deal put together by Apple's government affairs team and had about a dozen items in it that would prove favorable to China, including promises by Apple to help Chinese manufacturers develop, quote, the most advanced manufacturing technologies and, quote, to support the training of high-quality Chinese talents. Now, Apple also agreed reportedly to use more components from Chinese suppliers in its devices, also sign deals with Chinese software firms, collaborate on technology with Chinese universities, and directly invest in Chinese tech companies, and also agreed to strictly abide by Chinese laws and regulations. So Apple offering up a lot of things in this deal. And while details of the deal may have been secret, I kind of don't think anyone who was paying attention at the time would have not noticed that Apple was kind of getting together with China and uh, put two and two together. You may remember, especially if you were listening to MacCast back at that time, that Apple, and the entire U.S. for that matter, was facing increased and more and more difficult uh, relations with China. Apple in particular was seeing regulators placing restrictions on things like iTunes books and movie sales, and Chinese officials were actually threatening to impose more limits on other devices and services, things like Apple Pay and a lot of the things that Apple wanted to push forward in China. China was a huge market for Apple, and it was basically being threatened. Uh, Tim Cook and other members of Apple's senior management team, like Jeff Williams, the COO, and Lisa Jackson, who heads Apple's government affairs, were making trips at that time to China to meet with Chinese officials. So it was somewhat obvious that there was something going on. There was never a big news announcement made, but I don't know if I'd technically call all of that secret. Now, not long after all of these trips... Apple made a huge investment in the Chinese ride-sharing company, Didi Chung, $1 billion. You probably remember that bit of news. A lot of it looked like it was going to be initiatives going towards research and development for Apple's rumored car project. But now, in light of this latest news, obviously it looks a little bit different. They agreed to invest in Chinese companies, and that was one of the companies they made a huge investment in. Now, no matter what we think of this deal, it did seem to help. Over the past five years, Apple has done very well in China, and they seem to have largely avoided any additional restrictions on their products and services in China. Now, we also know that they have made some controversial um, concessions in China, uh, things that have come up in the news recently, like blocking certain apps at the request of China and those sorts of things. But overall, it has helped Apple's bottom line. And as a matter of fact, China accounts for roughly 19% of Apple's total sales. So it's a big part of their business. And according to recent data from CounterPoint Research, Apple recently became China's largest smartphone brand. And that is a big deal because, you know, again, years ago, 
Apple was really feeling a lot of pressure from the cheaper, lower-end Chinese brands. So they've come up a big way. You know, the question is, did they have to give up a lot to make that happen? At the end of the day, you know, Apple is a business, and unfortunately, sometimes they have to act in the best interest of the business, whether or not uh, we agree with some of their motivations and moves. But, you know, I'd be curious to know what you think about this. Is this a big deal? Was Apple trying to cover up something here? Was this a secret, um, a sort of secret deal? I kind of don't think so, but maybe it's just because I'm paying a lot of attention to what Apple is up to. But give me your thoughts and opinions, maccast at gmail.com. Moving on to some Apple TV Plus news. According to Deadline, Apple has picked up the rights for a new biopic about the company Theranos and its founder, Elizabeth Holmes. The film titled Bad Blood will follow the story of the blood testing startup founded by Holmes and is based on the book Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, authored by John Carreyrou. The Wall Street Journal reporter who first exposed the company, showing that many of their claims that they were making to investors about their technology were allegedly fraudulent. The film is set to star Jennifer Lawrence as Holmes and will be written and directed by Adam McKay, who is well known for the film The Big Short. The film will be produced by Apple and Legendary, along with Jennifer Lawrence's own production company, Excellent Cadaver. There's no current information on a release date, nor when the filming might begin production. Variety is also reporting that Apple will be picking up a new comedy TV series from the producer of Schitt's Creek, David West Reed. The 10-episode series will be based on the novel The Big Door Prize, written by M.O. Walsh, and is set to star Chris O'Dowd, who you may know from the British comedy series IT Crowd. The story is about a small town a, in which one day a mysterious machine appears in the grocery store that promises to reveal each resident's true life potential. The series will be the second one on Apple TV Plus from Skydance TV after the Isaac Asimov series Foundation. Apple has also reportedly picked up another new family-friendly series called The Surfside Girls, the 10-episode live-action kids series is based on a graphic novel of the same name written by Kim Dwinell. The show will star Yaya Goslin and Mia Satch, who play best friends in a town called Surfside. They meet a ghost and learn about a pirate ship and the cursed treasure it contains, and from there, the adventure ensues. The show will be run by Mei Chan, who will act as a writer and executive producer, and there currently is no information on a release date for the new series. And with that, that is all your latest Apple TV Plus news. Apple has pushed out the latest version of Mac OS Monterey 12.1 as a release candidate to beta testers. And while it has a number of nice updates, there is actually one big feature still missing. 12.1 will bring SharePlay and the Apple Music Voice Plan but it is still missing, believe it or not, universal control. 
You may remember that universal control is the feature that Apple showed off at Worldwide Developer Conference that will allow you to use a single Bluetooth mouse and keyboard seamlessly across a number of Macs and iPads. It is a really cool feature. A lot of people looking very forward to that feature coming out, but Apple has continually delayed it. Apple had said originally that universal control would be releasing this fall but that's looking less and less likely. I mean, we're getting close to the end of the year here. Now, 12.1 also brings a number of new safety features for children and parents and messages. It has redesigned memories and photos. It brings the digital legacy for your Apple ID. So that allows you to designate someone to pick up your iCloud account and your Apple ID after you pass and it has additional features and bug fixes. So like I said, lots of nice things in there, um, but universal control, not one of them at this point. Apple is also readying the next update for iOS, iOS 15.2. And one of the cool new features in there is the ability to, in settings general about, get information on the parts and service history of your device. Part of that will include the ability to see if genuine parts were used in your repair and if the repair was performed by an Apple authorized service provider. And having the ability to to determine that information could become more important here because Mac Rumors says that they got a look at an internal memo that was sent out to Apple's service service and repair teams and that they will soon be able to offer you a second chance at Apple Care Plus if you didn't pick it up and you have had your device recently repaired. Now, there are a couple of things that you'll need to do to qualify. One, you'll need to have purchased your device within the past year. Two, it must have been serviced by an Apple authorized service provider and use Apple all Apple genuine parts. And then three, it has to pass a physical inspection and a diagnostic after the repair. But assuming all those things happen, uh, you would have the opportunity to purchase AppleCare Plus at that time to cover any future potential repair costs. So nice little bonus. Uh, Obviously, you're going to have to pay for that original repair, which could probably be expensive. But, you know, maybe you've had second thoughts and you decided, hey, AppleCare Plus is something I want. It's nice that they're going to be extending that uh, at that point couple other cool features happening around iOS. Hyatt announced support for room keys in Apple Wallet. It will soon roll out support in six U.S. hotels in Hawaii, Key West, Chicago, Dallas, Silicon Valley, and Long Beach. You'll be able to access your room and other common areas like gyms, pools, and elevators, all with the tap of your iPhone or Apple Watch, as long as you're running iOS 15 or Watch OS Eight. And then great news if you're in Australia, Apple rolled out this week its updated Apple Maps experience to your country. That means more detailed road coverage, improved navigation, 3D landmarks, and improved views of parks, buildings, airports, shopping centers, and more. In Australia, you'll also now be able to get lane guidance, speed camera alerts, information about accidents and road hazards when navigating, accident reporting, and you'll be able to share your ETA. And then that also brings with it 
cool features like look around. I'm assuming in select cities, although I couldn't find which ones they were. And if you're in Sydney or Melbourne, you're going to have the ability to get step-by-step walking navigation in augmented reality. And I have to say, uh, and I think I've commented on this on the past, the enhanced Apple Maps experience is excellent. I'm glad to see them continuing to roll it out in more and more locations. And hopefully, if you haven't received it yet, it's coming to your city or region sometime soon. We've been talking quite a bit about the speculation of Apple's AR VR headset, which we're expecting to see the first version of before the end of 2022. And even though we don't have that first AR AR VR headset yet, that, of course, doesn't mean Apple isn't already working on the next one. Apple always plans products several years in advance. And to that end, we have a note this week from analyst Ming-Chi Kuo, on what to expect for the next next Apple VR headset. According to Quo, he says that Apple is hoping to follow up on the 2022 edition in 2024 with a unit that will be lighter weight, have a more refined design, better batteries, and an improved processor. He also took a moment to give us a few more details on what we can expect from this year's rumored headset, He says it will have the ability to seamlessly switch between augmented reality and virtual reality, and also that the weight will fall somewhere between 300 and 400 grams, although I don't know if that's really new information. We knew Apple was targeting 300 grams, so maybe it's just confirming that they've hit that target range and we're probably going to be somewhere in there. I saw some reports reporting 350 grams right in the middle, which I guess is in line with other Uh, VR headsets that are currently out on the market. Quo also claims that the headset will have advanced hand gesture and object detection capabilities, allowing the device to detect, quote, micro gestures. It's believed Apple will include four sets of 3D sensors on there, unlike the one sensor that we have currently on our iPhones and iPads, and that they will be even higher quality uh, than what we have currently. Overall, he expects the device to be able to handle uh, gesture controls, object detection, eye tracking, iris recognition, voice control, skin detection, expression detection, and spatial detection. So a lot of detection going on. This thing is going to be pretty advanced. We already know it's going to also be pretty expensive. To that end, Quo thinks that Apple could sell up to 2.5 to 3.5 million of the first generation head sets in 2023 and then following up in 2024 with about 10 million units of the second generation so it'll be like a typical apple product they'll roll out the first thing with kind of a limited experience but good experience and uh at an expensive price point in the first generation and then refine on that bring it about you know better price points offer it up to more consumers, offer more experiences, and uh, things will ultimately take off from there. But, you know, it's very interesting. We're going to talk a little bit later in the show about uh, what your thoughts are on, um, you know, this market that Apple's getting into. I find it very, very interesting. I just, again, still wonder how this is all going to work socially, if we're going to all be walking around with these VR headsets on our on our heads, or is it really meant to be used just at home? Again, we'll get into it a little bit later in the show. I want to take a quick moment here and thank a show sponsor, and that is ZocDoc. 
You know, when you get sick, it is not fun. I hate being sick. Luckily, I don't get sick that often. I'm a pretty healthy person. But that's why when I do get sick, I find it really frustrating and annoying that it can be very, very hard to see a doctor. That's when I need to go in and actually see my doctor. But you call up, you go online, you look for an appointment, and you get a date that is days, weeks, or even a month out. And when I'm sick, I want to see someone now. And I assume you two have experienced this. Well, I have good for good news for you. I do have a solution, and that is ZocDoc. With ZocDoc, you just download the free ZocDoc app, and it is the easiest way to find a doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance. You can read verified patient reviews and book an appointment for an in-person or video chat visit. Never wait on hold again with a receptionist. Whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free. I was able to use the ZocDoc app to find physicians and dentists who take my insurance and have appointments in literally days, not weeks. It's great. And also, because it lets you see reviews and comments from other patients, I feel confident that uh, they will be the right fit for me as well. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast to download the ZocDoc app and sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. Ming-Chi Kuo has weighed in on what he thinks is coming next from Apple. I think the list might not surprise you, but it does give us some confirmation on some of the other rumors we've been talking about here on the MacCast. Let's start off with AirPod Pro, AirPods Pro 2. Ming-Chi Kuo says they're coming, but not until the last quarter of 2022. So that's a little bit different. There was kind of some speculation on when we might see AirPods, 2, AirPods Pro 2 sounding like it's going to be later next year. He claims that they they will have an all-new design and that they will be losing the stems completely, so falling more in line with the Beats buds that are out there now. And he also says they will have new fitness tracking capabilities along with new chips to help improve connectivity. Moving on to Apple Watch, Quo also seems to be agreeing with the other reports from Various sources that say this year's lineup of Apple Watches will have three different models. The Apple Watch Series 8 to update the Series 7, also an updated version of the Apple Watch SE. And he pretty much confirms that Apple will release a rugged sports version, sort of like a G-Shock version of the Apple Watch this year. Not a lot of other details in terms of what features and updates will be across the line, but confirmation of those three models. And then iPhone SE 3, yeah, Quo has already given his predictions on a new iPhone SE coming this year. 
We're not expecting any real design changes there, but updates for with 5G support and an updated processor. But now Quo is also saying that Apple has bigger plans for 20 for the 2023 edition of the iPhone SE because it will have a screen size bump. The report doesn't say exactly what size Apple is planning for the SE3, but I would guess 5.4 inches to bring it in line with the iPhone mini maybe even replacing the iPhone mini in my opinion. But he also does mention that the SE3 will feature a RAM bump moving from three gigabytes to four gigabytes. And then we do have reports from DigiTimes saying the the iPhone SE2 release is still on track for the first half of 2022 and that component suppliers are ramping up production to get ready for that launch. Right now, our best guess as to when we will see an iPhone SE 2 is sometime around the end of March. Remember how Apple mostly won their Epic lawsuit? Uh, Epic had sued Apple and they were claiming a bunch of harms and Apple pretty much won on every account except for one, and that was that they were going to have to give some concessions to app developers to allow them to uh, communicate and a link to alternative payment methods. Well, the due date for Apple to start giving developers the ability to link to alternative payment methods in their apps came and went. That date was actually December 9th. As part of the ruling in their case with Epic Games, Apple was ordered by Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers to allow apps to have, quote, meta buttons, external links, or other calls to action that direct customers to purchasing mechanisms. Apple appealed to have an injunction on the original date for the changes to go into effect. After losing the request for the injunction with a lower court, Apple went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and actually won their injunction. And that is going to stay in place now until the court can hear Apple's full appeal of the ruling. And that could be several weeks, if not longer, away. Apple has claimed that the ruling could, quote, upset the careful balance between developers and customers provided by the App Store and could potentially harm consumers. They also say that they would need more time to work through the issues that the change would require them to make. So depending upon the outcome of the appeal, honestly, we may never see this change to the App Store rules. Not that I can say that's surprising. We kind of knew this might happen. The other ruling that Apple must allow uh, companies to be able to contact customers about alternative payment methods using mechanisms outside the app with information gathered from inside the app, like an email address, that does remain in effect. And uh, developers can use that mechanism now to notify their customers. So that change did go into place. But Apple definitely appealed and won an injunction on the in-app links to alternative payment methods. Remember when Apple acquired the classical music service Primephonic? Yeah, I don't blame you if you don't remember. We haven't heard much about it since, but this week uh, we did hear a little bit more about what might be happening with the classical music service. At the time, Apple said that they would enhance the classical music experience in Apple Music, which I think they have. They've added Primephonic playlists and I think audio content as well as a lot of the metadata 
to the existing Apple Music service, but at that time, they also said that they were working on a new service dedicated to just classical music that would be coming sometime in 2022. Now, it looks like they are at least looking to add to the pool of talented people working on that project. There was a job posting spotted by Mac Rumors for a UX designer to join the classical music team for Primephonic. Most interestingly is that the the listing mentions creating human interactions that include visual, audio, and haptic experiences. So I'm guessing you're going to get to really feel the classical music, that haptic part has me very, very intrigued. So interesting listing and uh, fans of classical music. Apple, it looks like, is continuing to work on potentially a new app. It's not clear, but the listing does seem to indicate that they might keep the name Primephonic. Uh, so maybe it be, will be a fully separate service or uh, potentially an add-on service to Apple Music. Don't really know at this point. Apple seems to be positioning it as a wholly separate service. So we'll have to wait and see what they do with that and how haptics may play into that. Wouldn't it be great if HomeKit was a little bit more open and a little bit more compatible with other products and services? Yeah, the idea of Apple having kind of an open platform is a little bit of a dream, but you may remember back in 2019, Apple announced that they were joining Matter, which is an alliance with Samsung, Amazon, Google, and the Zigbee Alliance to make an open and secure standard for smart home accessories. The launch of Matter was set to happen in 2021, but it had been delayed until 2022, and now it's looking like we're getting some interesting information on uh, some of the standards that might be coming out. Now, if you've ever used HomeKit accessories, you know that they're amazing and pretty reliable, but they also tend to be a little bit limited, right? They're Apple products and that work with Apple devices for the most part. And so if you're on a different platform or want to do mixed platform stuff, really not going to happen. Um, same thing can be said for other products as well, right? The different ecosystems are a little bit closed and don't play well together. Well, Matter was meant to change all of that and allow more devices to be available and potentially compatible with Apple products and each other. You know, it's not just Apple products. Again, it's Samsung, Amazon, Google, and Zigbee along with Apple. Now, The Verge has a report with some details on some of the cool stuff that Matter may have to offer. One thing is called Matter TV, which is a set of standards for TV functions, and it would let you control things like volume channels, inputs and outputs, etc. But it also has a spec for casting, which could potentially replace AirPlay 2, which is a very interesting thing to think about. Now, there are a couple of catches with that. With this, uh, apps would need to add support for the Matter TV protocol and spec, and so rollout could be slow or could be non-existent at all if the app developer chooses not to implement it. There's also no requirement for anyone in the alliance to actually adopt or su- support any specific part of the specification. So Apple could simply opt out of the Matter TV spec in favor of their own AirPlay technologies if if they don't want to support it. Now, the good news is it doesn't look like that's going to happen because Matter is actually built into or 
is part of iOS 15, and developers already have the capability to start adopting it in their apps. Now, I don't know if the Matter TV part of that spec is in there. Let's hope it is, uh, and that developers can take advantage of that. But it'll be interesting to see, moving forward, what parts of Matter Apple actually chooses to adopt and implement, and what parts they kind of opt out of. Uh, I would hope that, you know, being part of the alliance, they want to support the full spec and the full interoperability. I think that's ultimately what's going to be best for customers. And it'll be interesting to see how HomeKit evolves over the next year as Matter becomes available. But regardless, this is pretty exciting. It's looking like the spec is getting close to becoming a reality. And with home automation, interoperability really is key to it being, I think, ultimately successful. So if all of these organizations can come together and build a true open and secure standard for smart home accessories, I think that's going to be a thing that benefits all of us. And with that, that wraps up the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another couple show sponsors, starting with Overland. I have to tell you, at the end of a long day, there's nothing I want to do more than just step back, relax, and enjoy some of the small comforts in life. It's something I've been trying to do recently, take a little bit more time out, do simple things just like hanging out with my family, maybe playing a board game, maybe watching a movie, something like that. It's those rare moments. I'm also taking time to just enjoy small things like rain We so rarely get here in San Diego. And another thing that I'm finding I'm doing a lot more is slipping on a pair of Overland sheepskin slippers. I have a set of their men's Ethan classics, and I have to tell you, I love them. I have never really been a slippers person before, but after having these, I have fallen in love. They're the shoes that I go to right away when I'm just lounging around the house. And they're absolutely great because this set actually has a pair of rubber soles on them and I can wear them outside, inside, go out to get the mail. It's amazing. And Overland is a family-owned American heritage brand that has always put comfort and quality first. They've done that for nearly 50 years. They offer outerwear accessories and home decor made from sustainable natural fibers like sheepskin, leather, and wool. Overland uses expert craftsmanship to pair the highest quality merino sheepskin, which is naturally moisture-wicking, temperature-regulating, and antimicrobial, with supportive memory foam midsoles in order to make slippers that feel better and wear better for longer. Something that really sets Overland apart is that they're one of the only brands in the world to use true double-faced sheepskin, so the suede you feel on the outside is the same piece as the fluffy sheepskin you feel on the inside. It's lighter, more breathable, and it means there are no synthetic materials touching your feet. Plus, you know you're getting top-quality material because it has to look and feel great all over to meet their standards. If you want a pair of well-made, comfier than you can imagine slippers, these are the ones to get. And with the holidays upon us, I have to tell you, a pair of Overland slippers would make an amazing gift for a friend or loved one. 
Overland offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee and their commitment to customer service is exceptional. So don't wait another day to slip into something way more comfortable. Get the best, highest quality sheepskin slippers on the market at overland.com slash maccast. You'll get free shipping and free returns. And I recommend you go today because these slippers are so beloved that they've been known to sell out. That's overland.com slash maccast overland.com slash matcast and a big thank you to overland for their support of the show and i'd also like to thank my show sponsor notion you know with hybrid work becoming the norm the strongest teams have two things in common speed and alignment both come from having one hub where everyone can share work and processes manage projects and collaborate with clarity For companies of all sizes, Notion provides one central and customizable workspace that can be tailored to fit any team and bring all teams together to get more done and move faster. Notion is an all-in-one team collaboration tool that combines note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and much more in one space that's simple, powerful, and beautifully designed. Having worked in companies where workspace apps were separate, I can tell you that Notion's approach of combining everything in a single integrated tool is a huge advantage. It also has a great clean interface that makes it easy to use. Plus, there's a native Mac app for both Intel and M1 systems. So it'll work well and integrate well with your favorite computer. And with powerful integrations and seamless navigation, you'll have everything you need in one spot so you can make speed your advantage without the silos and context switching that slows companies down. Plus, Notion has a worldwide network of millions of users creating templates, tutorials, and inspiration. The product is getting better all the time, and you'll always have the support you need. Find out how Notion may be the missing piece your team needs to grow and get more done, and delight everyone who uses it in the process. Learn more and get started for free at Notion.so. You can check it out on your own and invite as many folks as you want to see how it works. Take the first step toward an organized, happy team today, again, at Notion.so. That's Notion.so. And a big thank you to Notion for their support of the MacCast. So as I mentioned earlier, we've been talking quite a bit about Apple's new AR VR headset, and we've been going back and forth. I've covered a few things here on the MacCast. I've shared some of my thoughts and opinions on it. I've shared some of my confusion and just trepidation, I guess, about exactly how this is going to work in our society, right? We're going to all walk around with this thing over our face and yeah, granted, it's going to have some augmented reality stuff, so we'll be able to see through, but you know, can people see our eyes? Probably not, not at least until we get true like glasses or contacts or something like that. So in the first iteration, I'm really curious, what's the appeal of this going to be? How broad is it going to be? How, what are we going to be using it for? And those sorts of things. So I sort of threw it out to the community. I asked you, what do you think about this? You know, is this a product you're interested in? What kinds of applications do you think are going to be like the big killer applications that Apple should be implementing? And surprise, surprise, Gary had some thoughts on this. So here's what Gary had to say. Hey, Adam, Gary, some feedback on Apple and this possible new AR VR headset. 
I think a while back, maybe it was a year or two years ago, Apple purchased, I think it was called Live Events, something like that. Um, it used to be in the Oculus store where you could go and attend a live event and you could be basically sitting anywhere in the stands um, or, you know, potentially right on the court if it was a sports thing or kind of right in the play if it was a play. Um, it was pretty cool to see it in Oculus. Um, I know that there was technology was needed to take it steps further. In thinking about the AR and VR, it just feels like, you know, the 1.0 product or even the zero level product of this, I think it's going to be a very, not inexpensive, but consumer purchasable item that's on par with oculus's headset or somewhere in the range where lots of people can have this affordability and their flagship um, feature will be immersive events where you can sit at a maybe if it's even a purchased you know maybe it's subscription based where it's you know attaches to all live events and possibly as they're happening or in the past, um, something that's been recorded, and using the spatial audio, using the resolution of their camera and scanning technology, making it very, very on par with if you were actually there. I remember using the um, version that was there, and I thought, if this could only be stitched together better, if the resolution could be heightened, um, if the audio components could be better, um, this would be super compelling. So that's kind of my thoughts on this. Thanks. Hey, Gary. I think the company that you might be thinking of is called Next VR, which Apple acquired in May of 2020. Uh, VR events, that is definitely an interesting idea. It's definitely also a good one. It's, it's a, for sure, a great use case, especially for virtual reality. Uh, and I think it will very likely be, I think you're on par. I think it'll very likely be one of the ones that Apple launches with, uh, for all the reasons you've already stated. But I also am of the opinion that Apple is going to need a lot more customer experiences to make a product that appeals to a wide variety of customers. Yeah, that could be a flagship feature. And as we know, and I think I talked about a little bit earlier, it's likely they're going to launch with launch with a more limited feature set uh, that they can then expand upon and grow from. But I think you're 100% correct that the first version will really be a point zero product, sort of the same way that we saw with the Apple Watch Series 0. It will come out with just enough features and just enough functionality to make it viable for a small group of early adopters. And then Apple can kind of get some quick feedback from the community. It can kind of see what the reaction is and adapt and expand future versions based on what they see. And I think they will continue to quickly iterate and grow upon that first version zero. I definitely feel like games is going to be another part of that very early push. And I think we've talked about that a little bit. So, you know, the idea of virtual events, virtual games, 
I think also augmented reality games. I'm, I am still very curious on what those launch augmented reality experiences are going to be. Some seem obvious to me, but with the form factor that we're expecting for the first set of quote unquote glasses, or really it's going to be a headset, you know, like a, a visor, think more like an Oculus. I can't imagine those of us walking around in day-to-day public type experiences with one of these things on our face. Again, even though it's augmented reality and it's going to have cameras and sensors on it where we could technically probably walk around with it on in augmented reality mode, I doubt you're going to see a lot of people doing that uh, or you might get some really weird looks. It just feels like you're going to be walled off or separated by this thing over your face. So I'm thinking it's going to be more about at-home experiences for augmented reality. And as I start to think about that, I'm trying to think about what would that be? Um, I think how-to videos and and repair manuals or something like that might be a really good experience for that. Um, I ultimately, you know, it once it's kind of a glasses-style product, I think, you know, walking directions um, or virtual tours when you're at a city or something like that would be killer. And I think that's a direction Apple might move in, but I just don't see that working with a full like headset on your face. So I'm thinking more experiences akin to AR kit experiences that we have in apps on iOS now, but definitely more immersive because you can just have that right in front of you. You're not having to hold an iPhone in front of your face. You're actually in the experience. And so it'll be interesting to see what developers do with that. And so I'm going to, again, continue to throw it out to those of you in our community. What do you think the AR experiences are going to be like, at least at launch? What kinds of killer features or killer applications for AR technology can you think of when you've got this headset on on your face? You know, another one that I know will work well for me when it's actually like a pair of glasses is I am not really great at remembering people's names uh, and to have like facial recognition that ties into my contacts so that when I'm looking at someone, it pops up their information in my field of view. That would be killer for me. That would be a killer application. But again, I just don't see that being something that works well with a full headset. It has to be something a little more or a little less intrusive on your day-to-day physical in the real world kinds of interactions. So uh, what do we think on this first headset product? I think there's a lot of VR applications that can kind of make sense, but I'm really curious, what are those AR applications and what do you think they're going to be? Shoot me some feedback, maccast at gmail.com. Another thing we were talking about on the last episode of the MacCast is the fact that the Apple M1 systems and really even Intel systems running on Big Sur or later with those, it's becoming less and less a possibility to do backups to an external bootable clone, something that is easy to create and is reliable. Uh, Apple has made changes to the security and to the software. If you want to kind of review what we talked about on the last episode, go back and listen to that. But I I threw this out there, and this brought up a question from Brian, 
who emailed me uh, because he's going to get a new MacBook Pro with an M1 Pro Max chip. It's coming later in the month. So congratulations, Brian. Again, I'm envious of all the folks getting those new M1 systems. Um, but he asked the question, you know, how if if like bootable backups are becoming more difficult, how do I get closest to a legacy bootable backup? In other words, how am I going to recover in a future where bootable backups really just aren't a thing, you know, where I can just like flop over and boot from my operating system and have all my files and data right there. Uh, if I have to do some sort of recovery, what does that process look like? Um, and, you know, it is definitely different. And I appreciate the question because we are all going to have to kind of adopt a new strategy. And basically, I think it's a pretty simple one. It's not not too bad. Uh, you will have to basically boot your Mac into recovery mode. And then using the disk utility there, just erase the internal drive and install a fresh copy of Mac OS on top of that. And then at that point, you'll simply use Migration Assistant to restore from your cloned backup. So really the only difference is, is that you don't have an operating system on that backup. You are going to have to like install that from scratch back on your, your root drive and then just literally clone your stuff back. So in some ways, it's a little bit simpler because while having a cloned bootable backup made it easy to get back up and running more quickly, once you start working on that cloned backup, files and data are changing there and you're maybe not necessarily backing that stuff up. So it's kind of a good way to get through a day, but you probably don't want to run like that for much longer. So now it's just going to kind of force you to actually do a restore and with a with a full backup using a tool like SuperDuper or Carbon Copy Cloner, you're still going to have all of your data. The only thing you're just not bringing back really is the operating system. So the steps to kind of restore in this world are you're going to boot your Mac while holding down Command-R on Intel Macs or just simply holding down the power button on uh, Apple Silicon Macs to boot up into recovery mode. And then... Once you're in there, you can use Disk Utility uh, to erase the Mac's internal drive, format it as APFS, Apple uh, File System, and then you will quit Disk Utility and then reinstall the Mac OS onto that internal drive and just install it normally. And then when Mac OS boots up for the first time, it will bring you into that wizard to go in and restore or migrate your data. And you just go through the migration process. And when you are prompted to select a source for that migration, you can select your cloned backup volume. So your carbon copy cloner, your super duper, and then just proceed as normal with the migration assistant, get your documents and data and all that stuff back. It'll be a little bit longer process, obviously, than just booting from an external clone. But once all that's done, you'll be back up and running. Now, one thing to note is that if you are using encryption on your backup, so if you're using something like FileVault, um, you're not going to be able to see that volume in the Migration Assistant when your Mac boots. In that case, what you're going to likely have to do is create a temporary admin user so that you can boot the Mac normally and then log in with that. And then once you've logged in, 
um, you will be prompted to unlock the volume. You'll put in your uh, file vault password, unlock your uh, backup, and then at that point you can run Migration Assistant manually from Applications Utilities and then just proceed with the recovery in the same way. So that's essentially how you'll do it. Uh, in the future. And that's kind of the process that I've just moved to. I think the more important thing is that we do have a backup. And you might also want to just as a safety net, create a bootable copy of just the Mac operating system onto a USB stick to use for emergencies, just in case you run into trouble booting from your recovery partition. Um, With Mac OS Big Sur 11.4 or later, you actually should be able to boot from an external disk with a copy of Mac OS uh, without any issues. Uh, There were some issues, I think, in earlier versions, but those were resolved with some updates. And Apple actually has a great support article that I'll link to in the show notes at maccast.com that walks you through the process of how to create a bootable USB stick. And anytime a new version of the operating system comes out, I actually go through that process and I have like a little tin with all the different versions. Because back in the day, we used to have DVDs. We don't have those anymore. So I just always create a a bootable USB stick and I have a whole bunch of them. So I have one for every version of the Mac operating system, I think going back all the way to Lion. Um, And those come in handy from time to time, believe it or not. And then finally, I do want to reiterate what I said last time about specifically the Apple M1 Macs and uh, booting from an external, uh, those, if you have a completely failed hard drive, you literally cannot boot from an, an external drive, period. If the internal storage is completely dead, you cannot boot. And that's because the operating system is checked. The boot volume has something called iBoot, and that's used to evaluate the integrity of the boot assets on any external drive or external volume you're trying to boot from. And if iBoot isn't available or accessible, no boot for you. You're not going to be able to boot. So that is a huge change. And so even having a an external drive that you could boot from won't help you in that scenario. Uh, you're going to have to actually go to Apple, get your machine fixed or repaired and uh, do that. And so I don't know what the the scenario is, the, the recovery scenario is in that situation other than waiting. I would imagine you might all have to have just like a backup Mac. So maybe it's time to like hold on to your old Intel system just in case you need it in a, an extreme emergency. I don't really know. I'd be curious to know what folks in the community think about that. You know, how would we handle that scenario and uh, share your opinions on that with us. But you know, that's just a, a, a little bit of feedback on that. One other thing that I did want to comment on, uh, because I think it probably came across sounding a little bit too harsh. Uh, a number of people actually emailed me to comment on my comment that I don't consider having your files or documents in iCloud as cloud backup. And a big reason for that is uh, with Apple's philosophy, especially if you're using the, you know, optimized storage option for documents or for desktop and documents using iCloud, you can have a situation where your only copy of a file is the copy in iCloud. And when you only have one copy of a file, that is not a backup. 
<laughs> and if it's only in the cloud and only Apple has it, yeah, we kind of trust Apple that they're going to, you know, do a good job taking care of that data and they're going to have it available and accessible to us. Um, but, you know, for me, backup means actually having multiple copies. And I guess if you're doing the thing where you are syncing to your local Mac and you have the backup copy in iCloud, that's okay. But again, it's not a full backup generally of all your stuff. A lot of people don't do a full drive backup. So you have files and documents and things that maybe are in other places on your Mac. And for that, I think I prefer personally using something like Backblaze where it's doing not only a full backup, but also a version to backup of my files and documents. Because that's another thing that iCloud doesn't currently do. It doesn't keep versions like Time Machine. Now you could be using Time Machine locally and that's great, but it's just in my mind, not quite the same. But, you know, having an iCloud backup is better than not having a iCloud copy, I guess I should say, is better than not having another copy at all. So it is good. Um, just in my mind, it's not exactly the same as a full like cloud backup of your entire system. So that's just a little bit of the difference. And I wanted to clarify that because, you know, it, it is good to use iCloud and to have copies up in the cloud as additional copies. Just make sure that that's not your only copy of that file. And so just a little bit of follow up on some of the conversation we've been having around recovery and, and bootable drives and those sorts of things. Of course, if you have any thoughts and opinions on this, again, give us some feedback. Susanna also emailed me this week, and she is getting a shiny new M1 MacBook Pro as well. And while the new M1s are really great at a lot of things, she discovered one place where an older Intel Mac may have a little bit of an advantage, and that is in the ability to run Windows, either natively via bootcamp or through virtualization, using VMware or Parallels. And Susanna was trying to get Bootcamp up and running on her new M1 when she found out that, hey, they don't do Bootcamp. And the reason is the core issue is the processor on the M1 Mac, along with the availability of a version of Windows uh, that you can license and run on an ARM processor. So as you likely know, Apple's M1 processors rely on ARM, the ARM instruction set. And of course, traditional Windows machines use x86 instructions. Now, there is a version of Windows 10 or Windows 11 that will run on ARM, but Microsoft currently does not license that directly to consumers. You can only get it if you're a manufacturer of an ARM-based Windows PC. So at the moment, really your only option if you want to run Windows on an M1 Mac is to use virtualization or to use Parallels. Now, even there, it's a little bit tricky because the only way you can get a copy of Windows 10 or Windows 11 that will run on, a, on ARM is to sign up for a Windows program called Windows Insider. And that's where you get previews of their upcoming OSs and you can use those for free. And so those will work. You can get a copy of that, 
by signing up for Windows Insider, and you can run it virtualized in Parallels 17 desktop for Mac. I think it'll also run in Parallels 16, but Parallels 17 is the newest version. But the problem is, is that at some point, Microsoft is going to decide that the preview versions are no longer available, and that won't be an option. So you're kind of good for now. Uh, But the bottom line is that running Windows on M1 Mac is sort of iffy, kind of dodgy at best at this point. Um, And I believe, you know, not everything runs on Windows. I do know that they have an emulation mode, kind of like Apple has uh, Rosetta for ARM M1 Macs. Windows also, Windows 11, I think, has an emulation version. I think it runs okay, but I'm not sure that it really runs everything. So it's definitely going to be a challenge to run Windows on your M1 Mac if that's something that you really need. And so just something to be aware of if you're in the market for a new M1 system and you've been relying on a technology like Parallels or VMware or Bootcamp uh, to run Windows. You're going to have a few more hoops to jump through. Now, there is another option out there that might also be worth looking into if you need to run Windows apps on an M1 system, and that is Crossover for Mac. Uh, That's from Codeweavers, and it's a little bit different because Crossover actually doesn't run Windows. You don't need Windows to run Windows apps using Crossover, and that's because it's not an emulator. What it basically does is translates the Windows commands into Mac commands and allows you to run the apps basically, I don't want to say natively, but you know, through this sort of translation layer. And the good news for M1 Mac owners is that crossover apps will run and work in Rosetta 2. The bad news is, is that with crossover, not all Windows apps will necessarily work and some of the apps might not work all that well. Um, but it is an option and something you can look into. And they do have a Windows software compatibility list that you can uh, look into. So I will have a link to that in the show notes at maccast.com. And you can check there and see if the Windows apps that you actually need to run will actually run in crossover and how well they were, will run. And so that could be an option depending upon what you're trying to run on Windows. So Susanna, a few ideas for you, but yeah, it's a little bit different with uh, with Windows on M1 systems, a, a lot more challenging at this point. I think it'll get better over time. There's some things happening. There's a deal with Qualcomm and uh, Microsoft that's going on that may make a licensed version of Windows for ARM available uh, so that end consumers can actually purchase it. So we'll just have to keep our eye on that and see if that eventually comes to fruition. But uh, thanks for the question. And sorry, I don't have a better answer for you at this point. And then the last thing I have for you in the Mac cast for today is a listener thing of the moment. I had thrown out there that, you know, I often make recommendations of cool products and software and things that I like. I call it my thing of the moment. And uh, I thought some of you out in the community might have some great Apple products or software or things that you've run across recently. Could even be just a tip or a trick or something like that uh, that you want to share with the community. And this week, Graham uh, sent in 
this audio comment about a piece of software that uh, he would recommend. Hi, Adam. It's Listener Graham from Portland, Oregon here. Over the years, you've done some fantastic reviews of productivity software that handles jobs like to-do lists, calendars, email, notes, projects, things like that. And like a lot of us, I found that I was using a variety of different software platforms to do all of these things. But there was always something missing from the systems that I'd built. You know, the different programs, they just didn't do a smooth job of talking to each other or effectively linking. So I went looking for something that would be a more comprehensive solution where everything would be in one place and all the logistics of the tasks I could perform would be at a central place. I found a fantastic solution in something called CRM software. Now this stands for Customer Relationship Management Software. CRM software is what businesses use to manage contacts and projects and all their communication. You may have heard of the program called Salesforce. It's a CRM platform. I chose a program called Daylight. Now that's spelled D-A- D-A-Y-L-I-T-E. I chose Daylight because it's created custom just for the Mac platform. You can use it as a solo user, but it also supports multiple users if you want to bring other people into the mix. This allows everyone to sync all of their work and their communication and activities. Now, the power of Daylight is its ability to link everything together. My notes are linked to my reminders or linked to my calendar and my email. And what this means is that I have a central repository for every every bit of information in my life. It easily searches, it properly tags, and I can find anything, even years later. The really cool interface of Daylight is its integration with Apple Mail. It gives you a small sidebar where you can easily link and tag projects, every email that comes down the line. It's super easy to do because the program actually suggests the links that you're most likely to want. So if you're looking for a one-stop solution for all your communication, your contacts, calendars, tasks, projects, and most anything that has information tracking associated with it, Daylight is a great solution. Now, if you want to check it out, you can just Google Daylight CRM. Again, that's spelled D-A-Y-L-I-T-E. Adam, thanks again for the Madcast. I never miss an episode. Hey, Graham. Thank you so much. That is a great recommendation. Daylight is a great application. And that's from the folks at Market Circle. I'll help you out too. I'll have a link to it in the show notes at maccast.com. I never really thought about it for personal use, but it sounds absolutely amazing and probably worth checking out. I'll add a plug also for another one of Daylight's applications, Billings Pro. I think I've recommended it on other podcasts, but I'm not sure I ever recommended it here. Um, I've been using Billings Pro from them for a long time because I do freelance web development and it's a great tool for me for doing my invoice and time tracking and just running my business. It allows me to set up clients and it's completely integrated with Apple Contacts. So I can then take those clients, set up projects, create estimates, track my time and send out all of my invoices and it has really great templates for doing estimates and um, invoices as well. And you can fully customize those. You can kind of customize them uh, when you're actually sending them out to add more or less information. It is really, really great. And it allows me to keep track of who paid me and who hasn't, which is really important when you're running a business. It's something I kind of learned probably the hard way. And uh, I'm not really good at invoicing and billing. And this really helps me out a lot. And I appreciate 
that it is a Mac native app and not something that's in the cloud. I like having all that locally. And plus, uh, at the end of the year or at key times, I can also run reports, uh, all kinds of different reports to find out how much money I'm making, how much money I'm owed, uh, how much money did I make last year, and who who did I make it from, all those sorts of things. And it's really, really helpful. And it is a great app. Plus, there's an iOS version, so it syncs all that data through the cloud, and I can quickly generate an invoice or a, a bill right when I'm on site with a client, which is also very, very handy. So great application. Billings Pro, again, from Market Circle, also Daylight. Check that out. Graham, that is a great recommendation, and thank you for sending that in. And if you have a thing of the moment, something you think the community would like hearing about, please send your audio comments or emails to maccast at gmail.com, and we'll continue to share these on the show. With that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Before I leave you, I do want to thank my show sponsor, Smile, makers of Text Expander. You can find out more information and details on Text Expander by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media, and they are at backbeatmedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9, and you can leave a voicemail there. And if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to find me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the maccast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. And that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.